From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Tuesday, July 24th was the 20th anniversary of a shooting in the Capitol building that felled two Capitol police officers and basically set off uh, two decades of hardening the security perimeter around Capitol Hill. It's a very, you know, somber day in a lot of respects and one that is difficult to sort of grasp uh, with the passage of time. Uh, even for those people who were around for it and covering it. I'm going to talk to our senior editor, David Hawkins, who covered the event uh, in his capacity at Congressional Quarterly back in 1998, and Thomas McKinless, our uh, extremely astute video producer here at Roll Call, who put together a documentary about the shooting and the aftermath. He interviewed several of the players, including a lot of people who don't always like to talk uh, about anything, but much less uh, kind of a tragic situation like this. And uh, this video is on roll call right now, but we're going to talk about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that Thomas uh, you know, got, to, got to see when he was pulling together this documentary. David, Thomas, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you, Jason. I'm flattered to be on. Let's talk a little bit about the day itself, David. In, in your capacity, you were a, a, a journalist at Congressional Quarterly. That's right. I was, the, I was the managing editor of the CQ uh, newsletter, which was actually a, a print publication. This was really early in the, in the era of web-based journalism, so early, in fact, uh, that when we first got word that the shooting was happening, it was because we were watching it. Uh, I was watching it on my desk at the office on CNN. Our reporters who were in the House press gallery were similarly seeing what was going on on CNN, uh, and they reported later that their um, the, the Capitol Police, who were near the press gallery, uh, they didn't even have radios that worked. So it was a very primitive, by comparison to today, a primitive communications world. And just like a, a, a quick wrap up, a gunman charged in through the Capitol. Capitol did not have the same sort of perimeter, security perimeter that it has with the Capitol Visitor Center and so forth. He shot. Uh, Uh, One officer and then another officer went down in the ensuing gunfight. Let's talk a little bit about those two cops uh, who went down. Sure. So so this guy, his name was Russell Eugene Weston, uh, and he came in through not a big tourist door uh, at the Capitol. Um, He came upon Officer Jay Chestnut, who was manning the magnetometer. Uh, Officer Chestnut was apparently distracted helping another tourist. Um, The account was that Weston shot J.J. Chestnut in the head uh, and then took off, started running. Uh, another Capitol Police officer who was nearby uh, heard the gunfire echoing in this, uh, you know, quite literally echoing in the marble corridors, mm-hmm. um, tried to uh, delay Weston uh, with gunfire of his own. And Weston, presumably with absolutely no knowledge of where he was going, made his way uh, through a usually closed door right by this magnetometer that took him into the Rep- House Republican leadership offices where he came upon uh, a guy named Detective John Gibson, who was uh, the head of the security detail for the then-majority whip Tom DeLay. They exchanged gunfire. Gibson was mortally wounded. Weston was seriously wounded, but not mortally. And, you know, when this happened, I, I had just moved to Washington uh, at, at, at that point. I'd moved to Washington in June of 1998. It was a tense place uh, at, at the time because we we're going through impeachment uh, mm-hmm. proceedings. Uh, Tom DeLay was, a you know, sort of a partisan. There. And at first, we thought that this might have been a political motive, and then we found out that uh, Weston was nuts, and it became sort of it became more of like a madman on on a rampage. 
Um, but this was just a, a real shock to me. I mean, I, I was I was working at National Journal for their their environmental news service, uh, uh, Greenwire at the time. It's since been sold to E and E. But uh, I, so I didn't cover it in the same capacity as you did. But it, it it quickly made Washington a less abstract place to me as a, as a newcomer. Ab- absolutely true. I mean, to state the obvious, this was 1998, three years before 2001. This was a time uh, it, it, magnetometers had only been anywhere in the capital uh, for about a dozen years. So there was a, a bomb that went off late at night in the Senate in the 1980s. Nobody was injured because the Senate had done what the Senate usually does and changed its mind and gone home earlier than the, <laughs> than the guy who was going to set the bomb off thought it was, they were going to go home. It was a much more porous place. You could wander around. There was there was these magnetometers didn't check everybody. There was one cop, not two cops. It was um, it was a sleepier place. This also happened to be on a Friday afternoon, right after the last vote of the week. A very tense vote in the House for the Republicans. They were trying to pass a bill to uh, create consumer protections for people in managed care plans. This was a big going to be a big issue in the '98 midterm election. The House Republican leadership had sort of had sort of jammed this through on a very close 216 to 210 vote. I just looked it up. I don't have it memorized. And, it wouldn't surprise me if you did. Though. And they were <laughs> celebrating or they had just finished celebrating. Um, and but most people had taken off and the place was really quiet. And our reporters were packing their bags to leave for the weekend. And Thomas, there, there's a bit of an age difference between uh, myself and David and, and you. Uh, <laughs> you grew up in the area, uh, but you were in grade school at the time. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think and I was five years old. Uh, the experience that you had in this event was, I mean, you were a kid. You didn't really know what was going on. So you brought very fresh eyes, I thought, to the, to this project. And you interviewed Tom DeLay uh, via Skype. You interviewed Bill Frist, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time. And as a, as a thoracic you know, surgeon, he actually administered first aid uh, to, uh, to the assailant, to, to, to Wesson. And um, you, you also talked to Matthew Federosa, the, the chief of Capitol Police, uh, who is a, a fairly reticent guy. He's not a, he's not a super uh, voluble person when it comes to the press. But, and he was, he was an officer at the time. Uh, and you also talked to one of our uh, alumni, uh, Jim Van Dehy, who was a reporter mm-hmm. at Roll Call at the time. He went on to work at Politico, of course, as one of the, the people first on the ground and then found Axios. And the way that you approached this, I thought, was so fresh and so, you know, sort of insightful. And it brought to life an event that we all know about because, you know, the Police Week is, is a big part of Washington, D.C.'s culture. But what was it like for you as a just as a reporter seeing this, going through old roll calls, going through the coverage and talking to these people? Like what was going through your mind, you know, as you, as you are going through these events that happened in your lifetime, but were, again, they became less abstract? Right. Well, I think to to start just as a, a rookie reporter covering Congress, what, what sort of uh, was most startling to me to some extent was just learning how how different security used to be. In my three years at Roll Call, it's, it's always been very high mm-hmm. security everywhere. You go and enter the Capitol, you see police officers pretty frequently. Right. And to, to imagine that it used to be so so different, so open. I've never experienced that as as a reporter the way the way you all have, and um, it's and hard I, to imagine too. Because I mean, now every you see bollards on the outside, and then right. you, and then you see this like rather extensive process of going through magnetometers, and you know, the, and the people, and that's just us. I mean, the people who go through the CVC, I mean, they have to go through a more extensive mm-hmm. process. Right. And and I think one thing that that I I didn't appreciate just starting starting out this story was how much reverence um, these Capitol Police officers today have for this story and for those two officers, Officer Chestnut and Detective Gibson. 
at one point when I was um, I was gathering video of the actual door where Weston came in. The uh, used to be called the document door, now it's the memorial door. And we had to get lots of permissions through the the house radio TV gallery, and they had to get permission from the speaker's office in order for me to uh, gather video there because there are lots of restrictions on where you can get vid- video. And an officer came up to me and uh, someone from the radio TV gallery who was accompanying me and uh, did what he was supposed to do, asked us to to have some sort of proof that we were allowed to be uh, filming there. And he was very formal. He was doing his job exactly as he was supposed to be. And then eventually, after we showed him various emails from the speaker's office and we told him what it was we were actually working on, that it was about this, it was about Detective Gibson and uh, Officer Chestnut and that we were doing something to memorialize their lives he it sort of turned a little bit and he was he was so appreciative he was like oh well I'm I'm so glad that you're covering that story that's such an important story and they in in training for joining the Capitol Police Force they really they talk about that a lot and talk about the sacrifice that those two officers gave in protecting the Capitol that day it it is you know rather remarkable that i mean the the and we can talk about this a little bit later about just how much more funding for security the Cap- the capitol police get now compared to 1998 i believe it's quadrupled uh you know in in the, in the 20 years but i mean we're talking about a police force now that has a funding level that's that's on a par with like a major metropolitan city like atlanta detroit new orleans and and yet they're in charge of a a relatively small geographic area and they know, you know, really all the people who uh, they have to know all the people who live there, and 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 they and they get a lot of visitors, and so it's like it's almost like a very big police force for a relatively small city of about thirty to forty thousand people. Right. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to put it. They do have some nationwide jurisdictions, some capital police. They're allowed to follow members back to their districts or their home states, especially if there's a perceived threat. They do go out and do threat assessments for their district offices. But yes, I think you describe it perfectly. I mean, the, the, cap, the capital, Capitol Hill still thinks of itself as a small town. Mm-hmm. It's actually sort of one of the bases for our com- the company that we work for, Roll Call, was designed to be the, ca- the community newspaper of Capitol Hill, of, the, of that community. And I think people somehow, sometimes um, our readers and those of us who work on the Hill don't stop to understand that keeping that small town safe requires a big force. Now, whether it requires quadruple uh, what it what it was uh, back in 1998, I'm not sure. Uh, they certainly uh, claim that it is without all that much justification. My reporting on this subsequently is that it's a small town with very little uh, sense of public disclosure. There aren't a lot of cop reporters that cover this place. Uh, so they do a lot of things without justifying their actions, certainly to the public. And, but to us only to a small number of lawmakers. But, and as a result, um, the force is enormous. It is. So, so Thomas, uh, I, I saw when you came in uh, to, to the office the one day when you had Bill Frist uh, in, in the office, I mean, it, it seems like there's still a raw sort of emotional component to this story, Absolutely. even 20 years later, and you could see that uh, with your, your interview with Delay. Sometimes we wonder why such things happen to such good people. But both John Gibson and J.J. Chestnut are heroes. And you can definitely see it in the interview with with Bill Frist. I don't pass a security officer or a policeman and not reflect back to the fragility of, of what life is all about, the fragility of what their service is all about and what they give of their heart, of their, of their spirit, um, of their life each and every day. 
were there were there points where you were just like, this is getting kind of heavy? Yeah, one thing that was really incredible, specifically with Senator Frist, was how well he remembered everything that happened that day, where he was when he first got the call from from someone at the Capitol saying there's there's been a shooting and not really knowing what that meant uh, because it hadn't been reported yet. And then he had been, he was about to get on in a car to go to the airport, and then he had his, one of his drivers redirect to the Capitol where there hadn't, no ambulances had shown up yet, and uh, the Capitol Police just said, Dr. Frist, and they guided him over to where he needed to be, and he, he had such a, a particular memory. It was sort of like one of those flashbulb memories. You, right. you'll, you'll never forget uh, an, an experience like that. And yeah, it did seem very, very real and raw for, for both for him and for uh, Congressman DeLay, because of course, DeLay also, which I didn't realize uh, going into this, had a, a very close relationship specifically with Detective Gibson as a member of his security detail. He he considered him a, a member of his family, that his, his children were, were close with Detective Gibson. And and you know we've we've seen you know some some recognitions. There was a moment of silence in the House uh, on on the anniversary. Uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, he 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 mentioned it in his leadership remarks on the floor, and and also the, the sacrifice of these two police officers. I mean, it, it, like is recognized every year at Police Week, which is earlier in the spring. And I hope this doesn't sound too self promotional, but it's it seems like a little undercovered for how significant mm-hmm. a thing it was. I mean, I think a lot of people think that. Just from a policy level, the reason that security ramped up in the Capitol was because of 9-11. But right. this is the event that set in motion the Capitol Visitor Center and, and like, the increasing security around the, the perimeter. That's true. It definitely, it definitely started uh, with this, and it, it then sort of accelerated even more, if that were possible, after, after September 11th. One of the reasons I think it doesn't get covered um, goes back to a question that Thomas asked me when he was interviewing me for this documentary, which was a brilliant question to ask, which was, so how did Congress itself react to this with respect to gun control? Um, and I was like, wow, that's a great question mm-hmm. because, because there was none of the partisanship uh, that there would be – that there was – there would be now, that there actually was uh, about a year ago when, when some guy with what turned out to be a cap gun tried to s- sneak into the building. Mm-hmm. There was all this partisan back and forth about more guns, fewer guns, gun control, no gun control. In 1998 – it was all about the community. It was all about it was it was truly a galvanizing force for collegiality and collaboration that sadly, if it were to happen now, we wouldn't see. Right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for, for talking about this. I mean, like the Thomas, my my hat is off to you on, <laughs> you know, honchoing this project. It's a you know, for, for those who have not who are listening and have not seen it, it's on rollcall.com and it's just a it's a phenomenal five minutes uh, of of you know what happened in this uh, at, at this time in history. And, and David, I, you know, thank you for bringing your, you know, sort of bird's eye view from covering it, uh, in, in the moment. Thank you. Yeah. Flashbulb memory, as Thomas said, it was, it's not, it's one of the half a dozen things in my career covering Congress that I'll never forget. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please take a moment and rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories and this incredible documentary, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thank you for listening.